Apparently, uh, 2020 marks the fifth year of a reality TV show called Married at First Sight. I have to confess, I haven't watched, uh, watched the show myself. But as I understand it, the first time the couple meet is on their wedding day. And then they decide later if they want to stay married. Uh, to me, this is a mind-blowing uh, concept. And at the very, you know, by any measure, it, it shows a very kind of low attitude about the place of marriage and um, a trivial view of the nature of divorce. It, it sort of implies divorce is, is no big deal. So first time you meet, let's get married, then we'll work it out later. The social theory behind making divorce easier was that it would help people get out of unhappy relationships and it would get them into um, happy ones so that men and women and children could all be happy and become more fulfilled. But the divorce revolution uh, of the 1969 Divorce Reform Act has not brought about this utopian society uh, that was promised. Uh, $51 billion is the estimated cost to the taxpayer of family breakdown in the United Kingdom uh, through the effects of, of health, extra housing support, legal aid, and lost working hours. And long-term studies show the very negative impact that divorce has emotionally, financially, and especially on the health and well-being of children. By almost every measure, children who experience divorce in their household uh, don't do as well as those who live in more stable homes. And so as we come to Mark chapter 10, I am aware that this is a very painful topic and that it impacts people at Charlotte Chapel even as it has a very massive impact in our wider society. Um, there's a limit to what I can cover in a sort of a 30-minute talk on uh, this topic. And I'm aware that it might raise lots of questions, perhaps, for those listening to this sermon. And I want you to know that, you know, this is a complex area. We want to care and support for you. And uh, get in touch with the pastoral team if this sermon today raises any particular questions you'd like to talk through uh, with us, just to make you aware that we are happy and willing to do so. But as we come to Mark's gospel, we see that trivializing marriage and divorce is not just a modern problem. Uh, there was huge interest in the time of Jesus, uh, and it was an area of great controversy and so we find the Pharisees approaching Jesus about this very topic in Mark chapter 10, verse 1. Hopefully your Bibles are open. Um, uh, verse 2, some Pharisees came asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Note this is not an innocent question. Look back at verse 2. They came and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife. Just think about the location where they are. Verse 1 tells us they're in the region of Judea and across the Jordan. And the significance of telling us that is to remind us this is part of the country ruled by Herod Antipas. The man who had divorced his wife and married his brother's former wife. Now remember what happened to the last person that challenged this marriage arrangement. 
Earlier in Mark's Gospel, in chapter 6, we learnt that John the Baptist got arrested in this very region and eventually lost his head because he was teaching that Herod's marriage was not lawful. And so when they ask, is it lawful? They know exactly what they're doing. It's a hostile question. It's trying to trip Jesus up. In fact, it's trying to get him assassinated, really. They suspect that Jesus also has a high view of marriage, and they knew that Herod Antipas would be very, very interested by his answer. So how did Jesus respond? Well, there are three points I want to make this morning from this particular passage, and then I'm going to go a bit wider to explore a bit more what the rest of the uh, New Testament has to say about uh, this topic of of divorce. Um, So the first thing I I, I want to point out is that divorce reveals our hardness of heart in the first five verses. Look at um, Look at their question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And Jesus uh, very wisely answers their question with a question, a great technique when you're under hostile attack. Well, what did Moses command you? And they reply in verse 4, well, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Now, they're quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 24, uh, where in the law of Moses, there is this recognition that divorce does take place and it tried to regulate it but Jesus wants them to know and to be clear that divorce was not God's original intention rather it was a concession to help regulate when things were going wrong and the reason that things go wrong reveals the reality of our sinful hard hearts verse 5 it was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote this law Jesus replied Now, divorce itself is not necessarily sinful. But the circumstances and reasons that lead to a divorce are always about sinful behaviors and attitudes. And so when the Old Testament speaks about divorce in Deuteronomy 24, it was actually to provide a measure of protection for women. It required that hard-hearted husbands had to certify in writing that they were in fact divorcing their wives if he found some indecency in her. In other uh, major faiths, it's actually quicker to divorce people. I believe in in Islam, you just have to say the the phrase three times and the person's divorced. But in uh, the law of Moses, um, in a sense, he, he wants to put some stops in the way, some steps before that happens. And so a man in a drunken haze couldn't just throw his wife out onto the streets. He needed to get it in writing. Uh, it put some delay in the process, hope for maybe some clearer thinking. Now, in Deuteronomy 24, it talks about if he finds some indecency. And the rabbis had a massive debate about what this phrase meant. Um, Rabbi Shammai taught that this indecency was adultery. Other religious leaders at the time of Jesus were using this text for an excuse for easy divorce for almost any reason. Another rabbi, Rabbi Hillel, was known for his teaching that if you found indecency in anything, it was grounds for divorce. So if, if she spoiled your meal, you know, too much salt, you're out. Uh, that would be sufficient. 
Rabbi Akaba said, even if there was nothing wrong about your wife, but you find another fairer than your wife, so she loses favor with you, then divorce was permitted. And so it's in that sort of lax and trivial view of divorce that uh, Jesus is speaking against here. And the first thing that Jesus says is divorce reveals the hardness of our hearts. And we should just pause for a moment and just think how sobering it is. This is how serious the sin problem is. Is that we end up hurting the people that we say we love the most. This is how pernicious and horrible sin is in our hearts. The second point about divorce is this. Divorce attacks God's creation purpose. Uh, In order to discern God's will uh, for marriages, Jesus points us back to the original purpose at creation. And he quotes from Genesis chapter 1 and 2. So uh, verse 6, but at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Now we're living at a time of massive confusion about so many fundamental things. And I think we need to listen to Jesus here and, and, and remember that we need to keep going back to the beginning of the Bible if we want to get a firm footing uh, of how to think about these matters. Uh, here is the maker's instructions uh, for human life. If you want to know how to live as a human being in this world. You know, so first off, you're not here by just some random accident. This is not a chance universe and you're a complete accident in a meaningless universe. Genesis tells us that we are in a, made by a purposeful, loving creator. I think that changes everything about life to know that, doesn't it? That we were made by God and for God. Your presence in the world is not an accident. You are specially loved and created by God. Secondly, humanity has a unique role in God's creation. We have a unique dignity and value because, as according to Genesis, we were made in the image of God. And I think this is wonderful too, because your value is not bound by um, how attractive you are or how productive or how able, or how wealthy you are, each one of us is special and precious because we bear the image of God who created us. Third sub-point, God made us male and female. Our biological sex and gender are a gift from God. Um, They're determined by God and built into our created bodies rather than something subjective that we come up with. There's a major shift that's happening in Western thought that's basically saying what you feel and think in your head is your ultimate reality. Well, that goes against uh, what the Bible teaches. Uh, Another point, men and women have equal dignity and worth as fellow image bearers. Uh, There's no place for misogyny. Uh, There's no place for man hatred or female hatred. We are, men and women are equally uh, loved and worthy of dignity as fellow image bearers. God created us to be sexual beings 
who needs the otherness of the opposite sex to fully express God's creation purpose. Look at verse 7. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Here from uh, Genesis chapter 2, quoted here, this verse makes clear God's good intention for marriage. Marriage, according to the Bible, is a decisive moment of leaving the family unit of your parents to start a publicly recognized new family unit. A uniting together of two people for a lifelong commitment. Marriage creates this profound unity. Two individuals become one flesh, it says. To be one in every sense, domestically, emotionally, and of course sexually. Sex is part of God's good creation to be enjoyed exclusively within a lifelong, loving, heterosexual marriage. Um, the purpose is for companionship, and as I hear little babies making noises in the room, also for procreation. This is kind of what, what happens. And so according to the Bible, um, sex is this wonderful gift from God designed for this exclusive relationship. And so all sexual activity outside of such a marriage is sinful and actually morally offensive to God. And I realize that this puts us in a very radical position in our society that just thinks it's crazy. The only thing that matters is consent today. Well, the Bible says, no, you need a lot more than just consent. You need a, a lifelong commitment of companionship in a marriage to enjoy this. And within that, it's a healthy and enriching, a good thing. Outside of that, it is, it is dangerous and harmful and damaging. And then Jesus gives his interpretation of these texts in verses 8 to 9. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And so marriage, according to Jesus, is not just a decisive act of one woman and one man. There's a third party involved. God is involved. God is involved in our marriages from the very start. He joins together two individuals into a profound one flesh unity. And God's creation purpose for marriage is to unite two people together. And that's why divorce is so serious. For it separates what God has joined together. And to be involved in separating what God has joined together is very serious and deeply damaging. Now Jesus never directly answers the Pharisees' question, probably because of the uh, hostile nature of the environment, but the implications are very clear. Divorce attacks God's creation purpose. The third thing to say here is that trivial divorce and remarriage is effectively legalized adultery. And Jesus makes that clear to his disciples when they, uh, when they go into more private place. Look at verse 11. Uh, Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Now in the context of um, Herodias instigating a divorce from her husband Philip in order to marry Herod, Philip's brother, Jesus is making the same moral stand as John the Baptist. It was wrong. It shouldn't have happened. 
To divorce your partner just because you're not happy or because you see a better option, although it's sort of created a sort of a legally nice thing, oh, we're divorced and we can remarry. Jesus says, well, no, such trivial uh, divorce and remarriage is effectively adultery, legalized adultery. And no doubt that's why he said it to his disciples in private. It would have been as shocking to them as it sounds to us today. To describe the act of remarriage as adultery against the original spouse was an opinion unheard of among the rabbis. And this then is, is Jesus' answer to the Pharisees' question. It was not lawful to uh, send her away in divorce. A trivial, no-fault divorce in order to marry another just breaks this commandment of God, you shall not commit adultery. Now, why is this section here in Mark's Gospel? I think there's, there's two main answers to that. There's two main lines of application. The first thing we should say is that disciples of Jesus are to take marriage very seriously. Since the high point of, of Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, uh, he's been teaching them about what it means to follow him. Um, Back at chapter 8 and uh, verse 34. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. And so Mark has been telling us what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And in chapter 10 he pulls together some of the fundamental aspects of Jesus' teaching as it relates to life. And so in the first 12 verses, we, we look about marriage. And then the next thing we see that he's going to focus on is, is about children. Obviously, that flows out of that, doesn't it? And then in 17 to 31, possessions. So chapter 10 deals with these very fundamental aspects of life. Marriage, children, possessions. That's pretty much life, isn't it? And he's trying to spell out what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus and deal with these different aspects of life. And what we learn here is that our lifestyle matters to Jesus. And disciples of Jesus take marriage seriously. To be a follower of Jesus means not to live by the easy divorce and remarriage practices of the culture around us. As, as disciples of Jesus, we're to observe lifelong commitment to our spouse, showing loyalty and love towards them. And so disciples of Jesus should take marriage very seriously. That's kind of Mark. And I want to just kind of pull back a little bit and just, because we don't often deal with divorce and remarriage as a topic, I thought we'd just look at some of the other key passages. And in the parallel passage in Matthew chapter 19, Matthew records the, the same section, but he includes an important exception. So Matthew chapter 19 and verse 8, it says this, Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Divorce and remarriage are the equivalent of adultery with the exception of when that divorce and remarriage are caused by sexual immorality, Jesus says. Uh, the word in the original language is porneia, from which we get our word pornography. 
And it's a term that refer, refers really to a whole range of, of unfaithful and deviant sexual behavior outside of marriage. Uh, these uh, exceptions establish the principle that insofar as it's up to the individual Christian, he or she must be committed to his or her spouse till death us do part and must do nothing to damage his own marriage or anybody else's. And yet, if the other partner withdraws from the marriage covenant by committing sexually immoral acts, then the remaining partner is free to remarry. Paul addresses this topic, too, in his letter to the church in Corinth. And uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is a key chapter. And he upheld the teaching of Jesus uh, in the churches that he established. Uh, the wife is not to withdraw from her husband. The husband was not to divorce his wife. And that was the case if just one of them was a Christian. Because marriage is good whether you're a Christian or not, actually. It's, it's a creation ordinance. It's a good thing. And if your unbelieving spouse is happy to be married to you, that's a wonderful thing. The situations arose, however, when, which were not directly covered by Jesus' words. What would a Christian do, what should they do, if an unbelieving spouse withdrew from the marriage? Well, in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 15, it says this, But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. So Paul declares that actually in that situation where a non-Christian spouse says, look, I don't want anything more to do with you and abandons the marriage, uh, the Christian is not bound to keep that marriage going, that a divorce is possible, and therefore I would argue remarriage, uh, if um, as we saw earlier from Matthew 19, if there was uh, adultery, sexual immorality, or abandonment by an unbelieving uh, spouse. Wayne Grudem uh, notes that this phrase, in such circumstances, the brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called you to live in peace. And he sees that this implies there might be other circumstances such as abuse, that like abandonment is, is a, so fundamentally attacking the marriage covenant uh, that the abused spouse is not bound to stay in the marriage. Now, this is a controversial point. Not everyone agrees with it, but I am personally uh, persuaded that, that this is the case. So the first point, um, Christians take marriage really seriously, uh, but we do see because of the hardness of heart, because of the nature of sin, that sometimes divorce is permitted and remarriage is possible for some in those situations. But the second thing I want to say is that divorce is not the unforgivable sin. Divorce does reveal the hardness of our hearts. It's not part of God's creation purpose, but it's not the unforgivable sin. The unforgivable sin is to reject Jesus, who is the only way our sins can be forgiven. In fact, I want to suggest that divorce might well be God's gracious deliverance out of an abusive and exploitative marriage. Chapter 10, verse 1, reminds us that Jesus is on a journey, and it's a journey that's getting closer 
to Jerusalem and closer to the cross where he is going to be crucified. And he's going there, he was going there to the cross because we all have sinful, hard hearts. It was there on the cross that he paid the price for all of our sin, including our sexual sins and our broken promises and our unfaithfulness to our covenant promises if we put our trust in him. Jesus can forgive our past. He can empower us by his Holy Spirit to live changed lives for his glory. Listen to what um, Paul says to the church in Corinth, which was really a very highly sexualized culture. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. So he's talking to the Christians in Corinth. He's saying to the Christians, look, some of you, this is your background. You've been sexually immoral. You've, you've, you've committed adultery. You've, you've been involved in homosexual acts. You, you've been greedy and drunkards and slanderers. That's what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Isn't this wonderful? This is why Jesus came to save hard-hearted sinners. To, to forgive the mess of the past, to wash us clean and give us a fresh start that we can live for his praise and glory. So I just want to think about how this relates to different people in different situations. Again, I'm so aware that um, I can't cover all the possibilities. In fact, this is what um, is perhaps the hardest areas that pastors and elders deal with is uh, marriage breakdowns and the complexities of these relationships and so you can pray for us uh, for wisdom as we have to negotiate some of these matters but first of all I want to address you if you're unmarried today if you're an unmarried single person here today and you're serious about following Jesus I want to say to you choose your marriage partner very carefully you are choosing for life you know uh, you know, Married at First Sight is a terrible show. You shouldn't be going on that show, right? That's, put your applications back in the drawer. No, put it in the bin. Um, you are choosing for life. And can I say to you, don't believe in the Hollywood myth that there is a perfect person out there, um, your soulmate, the person who's going to complete you. Uh, the person who, you know, is, is such a magical person that you'll never argue and you'll just be happy for the rest of your life. Can I say, that person does not exist. It's a myth. To think that you're going to get married and you're never going to have difficult days is a lie. There's no such person. Dave Harvey has written a very good marriage book, and I love the title, When Sinners Say I Do. Two sinners get into a relationship. Guess what's going to happen? Well, there's going to be wonderful times, yes, but there's also going to be conflict. There's going to be stuff to work through. It is true for every single marriage. And for marriage to really work, you need not only to be committed to that person, you need to be committed really to the concept of marriage itself. And we only marry people at Charlotte Chapel once they've done a marriage preparation course. And at least a time to encourage them to think soberly and wisely 
about whether they're ready to get married to each other. And the scriptures are clear. If you are a disciple of Jesus, you should only marry another Christian disciple. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39, it says this, A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to remarry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. That's the principle. To choose to marry someone who is not a believer it is not just disobedient, it is actually the cause of much loneliness and conflict and misunderstanding. You know, uh, marriage is a wonderful thing, but when you're pulling in different de- directions because you've got a different lord over your life, that's painful. Just ask uh, any people who've become Christians while their marriage partners have not. And if you want to follow Christ, my counsel would be, don't even start a relationship with a non-Christian? Why would you begin to build a life together when actually the Bible says you shouldn't get married to a non-Christian? Save yourself from grief. Save them from grief for getting enmeshed together and not having a future together. Uh, To those who are married and happy, nurture your marriage. Um, there's entropy in relationships. Unless you keep working at your marriage, uh, you're going to get problems. Don't take your spouse for granted. Spend time together. Uh, Plan date nights. Think about how you can serve and surprise your spouse with things that they love and like. Your marriage relationship is more important than your relationship with your children who will one day... Uh, leave the house, and, uh, and, and it'll be just the two of you. If you're married and unhappy, can I say to you, talk to some people and get some help. I find it agony, agonizing that often the time when I eventually have a married couple coming to see me, they've had years and years of bitterness, and they're just on the edge of divorce. And... Sometimes it's got irreparable at that point. Don't let the relationship get that bad. Um, When there's difficulties, ask for help. Ask for older couples who are married to come alongside you and counsel you and help you. and, 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 And what I want to say to you is God's desire is for reconciliation in your relationship. Don't give up on marriage. Seek help from God and seek in prayer and seek help from others. Um, there are some excellent marriage books out there. Um, Paul David Tripp, What Did You Expect? I mentioned Dave Harvey, When Sinners Say I Do. There's actually loads of great resources, and uh, if you want some recommendations, I'll be happy to give them to you. Research has shown that two-thirds of couples who stayed together, even though they were unhappy around the birth of their children, 10 years on, are happy in their marriage. Uh, things can get better. Things can grow things can develop very positively. And even unfaithfulness in your marriage doesn't have to mean the end of your marriage. With God's grace, it is possible to work for reconciliation and the healing of your marriage. But I also want to say that if your unhappiness is because you're experiencing abuse from your spouse, that's not something that you should put up with. 
The marriage commitment is to love and to cherish. And it's never appropriate to be abusive or experience abuse in a marriage, whether that's emotional, physical, or sexual. I, I think the statistics on domestic abuse are horrific in our nation. And there should be no place for it. And if that's your situation, please come and speak to one of the elders or the pastors of the church. And we want to help you. Help you get out of that situation. To those who are divorced, can I, can I say this? Please hear this. You are greatly loved by God. I know that divorced people find it difficult to be in churches. Uh, and if you've been sinned against by uh, leading to a marriage breakdown, we don't want you to run from church, but find grace and fellowship here. As I said earlier, I think there are times when divorce is actually God's gracious intervention to rescue people out of abusive, painful marriages that have become irreparable. But if you're divorced and you know that you shouldn't be, I wonder, can you find hope in your heart that God might be able to reconcile you back to your spouse? What a trophy of God's grace there would be if, to bring two people back together. And to those who have sinfully divorced, to those whose sin caused the divorce, to those who are now remarried when you shouldn't be, can I just say, run to the cross. It's not a light thing to tear apart what God has joined together. It's not a small mistake to pursue an adulterous second marriage. But God's grace is not light, and it is not small. I love the story in John 4, where Jesus deliberately goes to a well in Samaria and engages in a conversation with a woman who's been through a lot of relationship pain and disappointment. She's had five broken marriages and she was currently just living with, a, with another man. And Jesus purposefully goes to that well to meet her and to offer her something that these relationships were never able to give her. To offer himself and to offer living water that cleanses and satisfies his Holy Spirit and eternal life and a relationship with him. That is salvation. And if you're on your second or third marriage that you now realize is sinful, I want to say there's another principle in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It's repeated three times that people should remain as they are. God doesn't want you to add to the sin of remarriage the sin of divorce. Now, you know, within all those principles, there's a whole heap of difficulties. And uh, as elders and, and pastors, we want to love and care for you. And if, if, if this has raised issues, I say, come and speak to us. And uh, we will seek God's grace and pray with you and help you to work out a way forward. To those who are repentant and heartbroken because they're aware that they, things haven't been done right, I, I want to give you the great encouragement. It's a Christmas encouragement. It's the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew's gospel. Uh, that Jesus came through the line of David through Solomon. 
And the genealogy specifically puts this, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And I just want to remind us all that God can bring blessing even in the messiest of relationships. God wants you to work at, you know, if you're, if you're remarried, wants to work at this marriage, and God can bring blessing through this marriage. Now, it's a, it's a complex area, uh, but hopefully that is of some help, and, and I would encourage you to prayerfully consider this important topic, and consider what a blessing it is that God has given us in marriage. And I want to finish with a final hymn that is not very well known, although it was this hymn I, I sang growing up. But I, I think it's a really helpful hymn because it points us to the ultimate marriage of Jesus and his bride, the church, us. And it reminds us that the greatest relationship of love that God has called us to is that one we can all be in on by his grace and mercy. O oh Christ, he is the fountain.